Hello again, and thanks for dropping in on the Living Word podcast. It's Ian Gregg here with the episode for August 6th, 2023. It's a simplified, compact format over this summer season, holiday time for many, and a lot of exciting changes going on for us as a family as we're gaining grandchildren and trying to be in several places at once. So we're not doing the videos for now and working with podcasts and posts instead, which are a bit less demanding in a busy week. We hope you'll understand. Anyway, this week we're talking about generosity, God's generosity to be precise. Some folk mistakenly see God as a harsh judge, expecting perfection from us and finding plenty of reasons not to meet our needs. Well, that's religion, not reality. And the Bible paints a very different picture of God who created us, loving us despite our fallibility and looking for opportunities to be a good partner to us, helping us as we partner with him. There's an introduction which was posted earlier, and that sets the scene with the whole story told very briefly. Then we come back in a deeper dive to explore more how the different parts of the story apply to us in our lives today. So let's get into it. God is generous and gracious in giving whether we deserve it or not. A lot of people in church as well as outside don't believe this. On one level it's easy to grasp, but the disasters, difficulties and differences of human existence can seem like barriers. It's as if God has set us up to fail. But with faith we see how by experiencing failure, we seek his rescue and find it. Without experiencing the opposite of God's love and salvation, we cannot value what he freely offers us. The story of Jacob is from way back in time and culture, but it makes this point. Despite Jacob's tricky character, God, in his generosity, has decided to invest in him. And his way of getting Jacob in the right place was an epic all-night-long wrestling match. We read, The man, personifying God, asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and overcome. Which teaches us that we, of less than perfect character, can turn to God for help and direction. This is what the crowd on the hillside following Jesus were doing, and that immediate need was finding food. We read, Jesus replied to the disciples, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. So they all ate and were satisfied. God provided for them in their thousands, abundantly and without discrimination. But note that he involves people like us in his provision. To these Jews, a flashback to the time God provided bread in the desert meant he was offering his salvation again. But this time, Jesus is central, teaching us that he is our connection with God's generosity. Jews in their history knew all about God's generosity, as Paul reflects. Theirs is the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenant. And for us who do not have that history, he asserts, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So let's not pass on what God is generously offering, whether we think we deserve it or not. So that's a quick summary which gets the bearing of the story set out for us. Now we can take a deeper dive 
and start to hear what each part of the story means for us and our lives as we consider God's grace and generosity towards us. We are going to find three different but collaborative ways God reveals his generosity. In Jacob, we see God's generosity to those who clearly don't deserve it. Then, through Jesus, God's generosity is experienced by others through his disciples, believers like us who God relies on. And lastly, in Paul's regrets expressed in this letter to Christians in Rome, we are reminded that generosity is so much a part of who God is. It's not just a promise, but an expectation of his covenant with us and us with him. Our way of connecting with God's generosity is Jesus. But God speaks to us through all of his word, and Jacob's story has particular application for us. So let's look at Jacob's experience more closely and understand what this teaches us. Living in a very different time and world, but relating to the same unchanging, generous and gracious God. Who among us can say that we don't ever have an undisclosed motive or a hidden agenda or a bargaining position? Of course we do because that's part of the fabric of life. However, we would aim to be open and transparent in our dealings. That's part of our witness. If we've become Christians by asking Jesus as Lord into our hearts and living new life in him. If we've been following this series, we've got to know Jacob already. In those days, name and character went together and Jacob meant grasper or something like it. He grew up to be someone we might nickname Tricky Dicky or Wheeler the Dealer. He was clever and had the insights of a spiritual person, but he didn't always use them well or generously. Being clever can result in a calculating cleverness and being observant can easily become opportunist. <laughs> There's a bit of Jacob in all of us in our old flesh nature. We learned that Jacob was unsure whether or not God was with him as he left Canaan. Then God gave him an amazing vision in a dream of a pyramid-like staircase to heaven and spoke to him from the gate of heaven. Now he's learned that his brother, who he artfully persuaded to give up his birthright, is heading his way with 400 men. So Jacob has prepared an impressive gift to send, but for safety, he's sent his family over the river and he's now all alone. Then, apparently out of nowhere, there came a man who wrestled with Jacob till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel because you have struggled with God and with humans and 
have overcome. That's from Genesis 32. The way we become changed from the old life to the new life is by meeting with Jesus. In some traditions, it's common for people to adopt a new name when they become Christians. And that might be the idea behind christening or naming ceremonies today for a new baby. But of course, we can't choose to receive Jesus for them. But we can certainly prayerfully encourage them to grow up and make that choice and decision for themselves. What has that got to do with the crowd of men, women and children who are on a long march as they follow Jesus and listen to him teaching them in a mountainside natural arena? Jesus taught them that the kingdom of God had come near to them and they wanted this new life, this living under God's order of justice and love and provision. Many, many years ago, their ancestors had escaped oppression and slavery in Egypt with the promise of a land of their own to settle in safety. The journey took them through a desert, a wilderness area, and like the deserts that we sometimes encounter in our lives, God was using this, actually a prolonged time, to get the Egypt and slavery mindset out of them and get them relying on him and his promises. It took a generation, and while they were on hold in the desert, God provided food for them, a bread-like substance they collected and called manna. Now, what happens next is set against that backdrop, that part of their salvation history that they all knew of by heart. They are far from home and hungry, and Jesus knows this and has compassion on them, healing those who were sick and aware of their every need. And right now, it's food, we read in Matthew's account. The disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They answered, We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he told the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. That's from Matthew 14. What everyone remembers from this story is the magnitude of the miracle, and it is huge. The convention of that time was to count the men present, not the women and children. So the 5,000 mentioned in the full story is a figure you can double and add some. But how did all these people receive their food, and how did it multiply? The aspect of God's generosity we miss is that of God's Spirit, present in the proximity of Jesus, although not yet generally given, and his working in each of the disciples as they did what Jesus told them. He had said, You 
give them something to eat. And after breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And we read, the disciples gave them to the people. Each of the twelve of them distributed to near enough a thousand hungry people. They didn't go back to Jesus for more again and again and again, hundreds of times. The story doesn't tell us that. The practicalities deny it. The disciples were acting as an essential part of God's generosity and provision. Now, for us, in the era of the Spirit being given and our learning to live in the life of the Spirit, we see how one-man ministry came to an abrupt stop on this mountainside occasion. And we must be careful not to go back to it, for truly God works through each of us by his diverse gifts in each of us. Church practice has sometimes constrained ministry into its unbiblical and institutional mould. But we come to know God personally through Jesus, experience God through the Holy Spirit, and participate in God's historic promises, sharing them with others as we go. And this is the aspect which Paul now picks up in his letter to Christians in Rome, making a particular point about his own Jewish background and hope for his own people, as well as the many, many Gentile believers now making up the majority of the new churches outside Jerusalem. We hear Paul's deep regrets that so many Jews were rejecting and not receiving the good news of Jesus as he speaks of those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. That's a paragraph from Romans 9. We know now that there is no discrimination on grounds of race or social position or anything else. So what is this teaching us? Jews had a deep sense of being people of the covenant, people bound in a good way to God and his good promises. Unless they were persistently unfaithful to God, and that was also part of their history, God would be there for them they could live in the blessing of his grace and generosity. And us, if we're not of Jewish heritage, the context of what Paul is teaching is the new life in the Spirit and how, by faith, we can live in the promises of God and the provision of God. His point, his regret, is that the Jews have always known about this and now they are the ones missing out. As he says, Theirs is the adoption to sonship. And we know from other parts of the Bible, a lot of the teaching he gives about the new life in Jesus and the new identity is about that great privilege of being adopted as sons and heirs of God, not passed down through tribal ancestry, but by being believers who have trusted Jesus as Saviour and Lord and received the Helper, the Holy Spirit. A little later, in this letter and 
We touched on it in the introduction. He writes, How much more will these, that's us, the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? That's uh, from Romans 12. It's as if that source of life and covenant belonging has always been there for us to be reconnected through Jesus. The message of the Bible, put simply, is that God is good and God is generous and he treats us not as we deserve, but as his love dictates. That's why a joyless Christian is a contradiction in terms. Becoming a Christian through choosing Jesus is how the joy of the new life is released. It connects us to the age-old covenant of God's promises based on his goodness and generosity. And that is the discovery of our generous, gracious God. Let me share a brief prayer with you. Father God, I thank you for your Son, Jesus, being the demonstration of the kingdom of God and teaching us what it means. May I grow in recognising the working of your kingdom. May I see your kingdom coming more and more, both in the church and in the wider community. And may I be empowered by your Spirit and increasingly effective as a bringer of your generous rule and reign. Amen. Well, that's about it for this time. Hope you are encouraged and are beginning to hear God for yourself through his word. Look forward to being with you next time. Till then, God bless. <laughs>